0: Doing a short series uh, between now and uh, now in the season of Lent on jesus' life and teaching and some of his travel and kind of a, a, an overview, a glimpse of of where he he traveled in his home country and uh, kind of trying to to lay down a framework for what what really was the point of of his whole ministry what, what, what it was it that Jesus was wanting to accomplish and, and doing that by looking at a few different passages and today To do that, we're going to actually start near the end of Jesus' ministry. Uh, It was almost to the time that He was heading to Jerusalem for the last time. Uh, He's been with this group of disciples now for almost three years. He spent nearly three years with these guys, trying to help them understand everything that He can get them to understand about the Scriptures that they knew, which is the Old Testament Scriptures, that what they were really doing was pointing to Him and what that meant and how it is that would it would go forward. And so they've spent every day together. He's been discipling them and He's been teaching them because ultimately they're the ones that are going to have the responsibility for planting the Christian church because there is no Christian church at this point. There's Jesus and the disciples. The, the church didn't happen the way we understand it until after He'd left. So Jesus and these 12 guys and the other people that traveled with them really were the church's first life group. They literally lived life together. They lived life together. They grew. They learned. They prayed. They went out and and, uh, ministered to people, which is exactly what we're trying to do with our life groups. Now, fair notice with this passage, um, this is one that I could get a little bit excited about and preach for quite a while on because it's fascinating. And part of the reason it's fascinating because I preached on this text a few months ago and I got it almost completely wrong. So there's my way of true confession. I'll explain to you why and how. And the important parts uh, weren't entirely wrong, but I just didn't completely understand until I actually got to go to the place that this passage happened. And so while I could go on for two hours, you don't have to worry about that because one of the very first things, my father, a very wise man, I learned to listen to a long time ago. My very wise father who's here this morning and I talked to him about how at seminary they told us, you know, they always want you to memorize your sermon. And Dad, who had spent years teaching, and I knew he knew how to how to present and teach and talk to people, said, "You know, I never trusted a preacher without notes. They never know when to end." <laughs> Dad, where are you? I got I got my notes. I know, I'll know when to end. But it's one of those things that the, the 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 passage and the context is so fascinating, and I just had no clue until I actually had the privilege of being there. I had no clue. So Jesus is traveling with His disciples, and now they're at the northern part of the country of Israel. They're all the way near the northern border. And you need to understand that Israel is about the size of the state of New Jersey, which is why they could walk everywhere. It took them a few days, maybe a week, a week and a half. But they walked everywhere because the fact is the whole country just wasn't all that big. So He's up here in the north with His disciples, and they're on, heading all the way down to Jerusalem to go up to Jerusalem at the end of His life. And He's preparing His disciples for what their job is going to be after He's gone. And what we find out today is that what Jesus wants to do is to make sure that He makes the statement in the most clear way possible that they realize what's at stake. When He talks about the church and He uses the word ecclesia for the first time, which is the church... When He talks about the church, He wants them to know what He's talking about and what they're up against. And that's what we step into today. So if you've got your Bibles, we're going to Matthew 16. We're going to start in verse 13. It says, When Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, Caesarea Philippi is in northern Israel. Uh, it's a place that had been greatly influenced away from God For generations, by Israelites, Canaanites, Romans, and Greek, all those different cultures took people away from God. And the things that they worshipped and the things that they did couldn't have been more ungodly. It's also the place near the Old Testament city of Dan where when this kingdom split in Israel, uh, the the new king brought them to Dan, and that was where the uh, religion was located outside of Jerusalem. So to the brief bit of history then, there's, there's ten tribes that split. Uh, there was two that remained near Jerusalem. Ten of them split and went north to the city of Dan. The other ten stayed in Jerusalem. They were called Judah. The northern ones were named, retained the name Israel. If you've read your Old Testament and haven't put all those pieces together, that's important. Here's a slide of the place that we were. This is actually part of the temple complex in the city of Dan that they've started excavating now. Uh, there's a lot of it there. You actually just get to walk around, and it's kind of cool because there's a lot of history. You're talking more than 2,000 years ago here. If you look off in the background, the white buildings and the mountains you see off in the right corner, that's the country of Lebanon. And then if you look off to the right on either side, that's where Syria is. And so they're way, way north. That's where this action takes place. He takes the disciples all the way up there, not because that place is important, but the place that He's about to teach them is a very important place. And so He asks His disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? It's an important question. Je- Jesus knows who He is. He's been listening to people. He knows what they say. But he wants his disciples to get in touch with this because what he wants them to realize is that perception isn't reality. Who they know him to be or who he hopes they know them to be is not the same as what the world around them understands him to be. And so he says, who is it that people say that I am? It's the entire point of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. The answer to that question means everything. And they said, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Their answer is correct, and the bottom line is people didn't have a clue. They really didn't understand who Jesus was. They'd heard, they'd been told, they knew the truth, they just didn't buy it. Maybe He was a reborn prophet. He was a miracle worker, that's for sure. He's wandering sage, traveling guru, great teacher, circus sideshow. Who knows? They took Him to be many, many things, but the fact is most people didn't understand who He really was. They liked what He did, but they didn't understand who He was. And it was important that Jesus get His disciples in touch with who He really was. So then He said to them, but, who do you say that I am? I love that question, but, because what it means is there's a difference between what they say and what you guys believe. That might be what the world says about me, but what do you say about me? Who do you say that I am? Okay, now we've talked about everybody else out there, and what he's going to help them understand is that's your mission field. But who do you say that I am? Same question holds true for you and I today. Who's Jesus to you? Is he a, a teacher of kind of old school morality that just doesn't have a place in our world today? Maybe he's a modern day, out of touch ancient teacher? Maybe He was a good guy that seemed to do more good things than bad things in the world, but nothing special beyond that. Maybe He's little more than an interesting historical curiosity who just never seems to go away to you. Who do you say that He is? Who is Jesus to you? The moment you hear the name Jesus, you've got to come up with an answer to that question. Everybody on earth that here's the name Jesus has to answer that question. Who is Jesus to you? And here's the deal. Not only do we all have to answer that question, that's the only question you're ever going to face in your entire life that has an eternal consequence to your answer. It's different than getting a test uh, test question right or wrong. It's different than whether or not you remember what some historical figure may or may not have done. The question about who Jesus is to you, the very same question He asked His disciples, is a question that has eternity hanging on your answer. Who is Jesus to you? We don't make the assumption here that He is your personal Lord and Savior. I take it that if you're here this morning, you want to know more about Him and what we believe. But the question that Jesus asked the disciples is the single most important question you will ever be asked and have to answer in your life. And if you think that not answering is good enough, it isn't, because that is essentially like saying, I don't believe He's important enough to bother with. And that has an eternal consequence to it as well. Verse 16, Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Good old Peter. First one to jump in, quick to speak kind of gets in line ahead of everybody else and he answers kind of for, for everybody. He didn't really give them a chance. It doesn't record anybody else's answer. He professes Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, the long-awaited Savior, the Son of the living God, all like, unlike all the other gods. We'll find out more about who he's talking about there in a moment. Unlike all the other gods, he, Jesus is the Son of the living God. See, a whole lot of gods in the world in their day, just like there are in ours today. The names have changed in a lot of cases, but you know what? Every other one of them is not alive. The God of creation is alive. Jesus is alive. He was standing right in front of Peter. He's alive today. He says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Verse 17, and Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but My Father who is in heaven. Two things there. The first thing is His name. Get to that in a moment. second thing is He's saying to Peter, that's the right answer. But Peter, before you get a big head about it and start thinking you're all that in a bag of chips, the only reason you know that is because God, My Father, told you that. You understand because of Him, not because of your superior wisdom. Jesus calls Him Simon Bar-Jonah, not Simon Peter. He's going to call Him Peter in a moment. He calls him Simon Bar-Jonah. What does that mean? Very simply, Bar means son of. Jonah is his father. It would be like for all of the Scandinavians who are a Johnson. You're the son of John somewhere back there. Olsons are the son of Oli. Well, he was the son of Jonah. Bar-Jonah also literally means son of a dove. I find that pretty curious for all the New Testament examples where the the Holy Spirit is often referred to in the scene as a dove. Simon replies, You are Christ, the Son of the living God. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. When I preached on this last time, I thought I had it figured out. I put a lot of time understanding it. I read and I researched and I went back and forth through the Bible, and I figured I had a really good grip. I figured pretty clearly Peter wasn't the rock. And I figured there wasn't a church or something that was around. And so I made the assertion that it was Jesus, that Jesus was the rock. That surely if we read it that way, that must have been the proper understanding. And then I had the opportunity, the wonderful and humbling opportunity, to stand on the place where Jesus taught this lesson to His disciples and realize that I couldn't have been more wrong. I couldn't have been more wrong at all. See, we know that these words have caused some friction in the church for 2,000 years. See, but we know Jesus would never cause division among believers, but He might make a statement that would separate the wheat from the chaff, the faithful from the frivolous, the true believers from the idol worshippers, and that was what He was in the middle of. See, the Roman Catholic churches understood that Peter was the rock. They take it literally because Peter, Petra, means stone or small rock. They say that's, that's what they mean. And so what's happened is that they have for 2,000 years built a line called papal succession and every pope that's ever been crowned pope is said to have been in the line of Peter, who was the first pope, as though somehow this day what Jesus did was say to Peter, that Peter, you are the pope. Nowhere does it say that in the Bible, so that must be a wrong understanding. In fact, it isn't very far from now that Peter, when they get to Jerusalem, is going to deny any acknowledgement, any acquaintance with Jesus, much less that Jesus is his Savior. And then if we read in a few verses later, we find out Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan, because Peter is talking about things that are not a part of God's will. doesn't sound like the kind of thing that the church is going to be built on. So then the Protestants come along. They decided that Peter's confession of Jesus as the Son of the living God is that the rock is him it's Jesus, in First Peter 2.5, Peter himself writes, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, a church, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. It's almost like Peter is refuting the claims about them, saying, if anything, we as Christians are going to be the ones that are the foundation of the Christian church. And then we visited Caesarea Philippi, and I found out what Jesus was really talking about. I stood in the place that He stood when He talked to the disciples. I walked on the ground. I saw what was around me. And I realized that I'd missed the old proverbial fishing boat by a mile. And I'll tell you what, it was absolutely ground-shaking to me. Jesus brought His disciples to the most unholy place in all of Israel. He brought His disciples to a place that it had to have made them shudder when they understood where Jesus was actually taking them. Why in the world, Jesus, would You take us there? Because those people couldn't be any more different from us. Why would You take us there? What is Your plan? And what I found out was Jesus was speaking to them from a rock, a a literal rock. A most unholy rock. See, the, the place where they were standing is where 3,000 years ago the Canaanites had started to gather and to worship. There's a river that flows out now called the Pius River that flows down from here, interestingly, and you'll get the connection to this in a bit. That river is one of three in the northern part of Israel that feeds in to become the Jordan River. And so they gathered here because there was water and there was rocks and there was cliffs. And their worship back then centered around Baal, the bull god, and Baal was responsible for sending rain, and Baal was responsible for good crops, and Baal was responsible for fertility, and so they worshiped him with all of those things in mind. And one of the things that they did was that they built these statues in this cave, and this this cave had a, uh, had water in the bottom of it, and so they built the statues near it. And, and what they would do to appease Baal in order for Baal to give them all the things that they asked for was that they offered human sacrifices. And the human sacrifices were infants. And they'd lay the infants on the outstretched, superheated arms of these Baal statues, and they would literally roast alive and fall into the water below. And they believed Baal would be happy. And that was where this place really got its start in history. This is the cave, and that's, the statues were near there. And that was where the people worshipped. And back in the day there was water. An earthquake has since happened, and it's covered it up, and so there's no more water, and it's just ground. And then the ancient Greeks came along to the same spot, They also believed that this cave was special. They believed that it was a gateway to the underworld, a place of the dead. They call it Hades. We understand it as hell. Their worship also involved all kinds of depraved things, including temple prostitution. And what they would do is that they would sacrifice the babies born to the temple prostitutes by throwing them into the waters to drown in the cave, so that the temple prostitutes could keep working and not be bothered with having to raise a child. And their religion continued, hoping for prosperity. And then along came the Romans, and they believed that their god Pan was born here, which is why they called it Panaeus. They built a new temple in honor of the Roman god Pan, of course, who was the god of, take a guess, fertility. There were other shrines and grottos around there as well, but they worshipped fervently with... Again, depraved sexual immorality, temple prostitution, and once again child sacrifice. They threw the kids into the water of the cave. You catch the theme going on here? See, for the Romans, Caesar was the only one true and living God in the world, and that gets to part of Peter's confession. Peter was standing up against Caesar, son of the living God. For the Canaanites and the Greeks and all the others who consider themselves very religious, they believed they were worshiping religious deities, but they didn't actually believe any of them was alive in a real sense. So it's on this rock where there's all these niches cut into the cliffs that they put the statues of their gods. Small g. All kinds of them. Dozens of them. And if one didn't answer prayers for a year or two, they got rid of it and they created a new God. This is where Jesus brought His disciples. This place where for thousands of years people had worshipped in the most ungodly of ways. In the midst of this depravity and godlessness, Jesus brought Peter and the disciples to make Peter's declaration. Peter's name meant rock, yes. But Jesus had brought them to this most unholy of places. A rock that had a completely different name and a completely different purpose. And so when he says, Upon this rock I will build My church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He was probably standing on that rock that the people are the big square one. Because just beyond Him is that cave with the water where all the children have been sacrificed for hundreds of years. Guess what it's called? I didn't know this till I got there. It's called the gates of hell. Jesus says, On this rock where He was standing, I will build My church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus literally brought the disciples to the gates of hell, the home of depravity, to declare that there's nothing in the world that the devil can do that will stop his church. There's nothing that the enemy can throw that is more powerful. Not sexual depravity, not child sacrifice. None of it is powerful enough to stop the growth of Jesus' church on earth. See, Jesus sees the church as the aggressor, not as the victim. It's here that He uses the word church, ecclesia, for the first time in the New Testament. And this is where the disciples begin to understand what's at stake. Where Jesus says, we're not going to back down. We're going to go on the attack and the vision has been cast by none other than Jesus Himself. The rock that Jesus referred to in the passage isn't Peter and it isn't Himself. It was the earthly rock at the base of Mount Hermon, the demonic headquarters of the Old Testament and the Greek and Roman and Canaanite world. And his point is that God doesn't fear anything. Not, not the greatest evil the humans can imagine and carry out is evil enough to defeat God's work on earth. His church will prevail within all of that evil. And what that means is we don't have to fear evil either, for He is with us. Jesus is making the statement of why holiness is so important, not happiness. For thousands of years, different cultures of people had gathered here in order to offer sacrifices of children to try to ensure their happiness. If they had happiness and prosperity, they figured all would be well. In the midst of this happily religious and thoroughly unholy culture, Jesus claims victory. Holiness, becoming holy is what God asks of us. God takes the worst that the world has to offer. And with Jesus, the Word of God, and with the love of God, He says none of it can stand against Him. That's why we've got to make sure that we do not change the Word that we have been given in the Bible as it has become so fashionable to do in our churches in recent years. When we do that, the church ceases to be the bride of Christ. And we simply become another club that looks to make happy people, not holy people. Because we will never become holy outside the Word of God. Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, along with the death and the resurrection of Jesus, for the forgiveness of our sins is the very foundation of our faith. That's why Jesus came to that rock and to say, this is where I will build my church. Nothing the enemy can throw against it is going to stand. Jesus takes death and defeats it with love. He takes hatred and evil and He defeats them with forgiveness of sins for everybody who believe in Him. Walked around that place that day and just had chills down my spine like everybody else that we were with did. And I realized something. The gates of hell are all over our world today. The gates of hell are everywhere. We still provide a home to the gates of hell. If hell is the place of the dead, really dead and spiritually dead, the gates of hell will always be a stronghold of death. You know what? Even in America today, we, stack, we still continue to sacrifice children in the name of happiness and prosperity. Not a very popular topic, but you know what? It's true. Even in the midst of the great sins of our nation, God's church will stand against the very worst evil that the world will throw and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, not because of us, but because of Jesus. So back to that question, who do you say that He is? Why does it matter? I'll tell you, it matters because when people know that you go to church, people know you go to this church, people will ask you why. Why do you do that? What what, what do you believe in? Why do you go to that place? The world will ask you who you believe Jesus is. Do you believe he's the Son of God? Do you believe he really died and came back to life? Do you really believe Jesus is exactly who the Bible says he is? That he's the Son of God? Or maybe in your mind, he's just a guy, a guy that history hasn't been able to shake free from. Maybe he's your 9 11 emergency God genie in the Bible. you go to when you don't have any other options. Maybe He's your personal Lord and Savior. Maybe He is your first and greatest love. Is your answer to that question, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God? Because it's only those words, it's only that answer, that belief, that confession. That's the only way you and I will ever get to heaven. So where are you today with all of this? How strong is your faith? Are you prepared to follow Jesus all the way to the gates of hell in order to share His death and resurrection and the salvation that we receive when we put our faith and hope and trust in Him? You know, the one thing that I couldn't wait to do in that place was to get away from it. It felt awful. It's beautiful. The country around it is absolutely gorgeous. But it absolutely felt awful. See, if we're going to be a culture-changing church, we must be prepared to take on the strongholds of the enemy and storm the gates of hell here on earth in our area, as well as through mission work around the world. It won't be easy. It's not going to be fun. Goodness knows it isn't going to be popular. People aren't always going to like us. But if we believe that Jesus truly is the Christ, that He's really the Son of the living God, then it's our call, it's our responsibility to join those first disciples and storm the gates of hell here on earth and build Christ's church everywhere we go. But here's the thing. The gates of hell aren't people. That's not what the gates of hell is all about. It's places and ideas and institutions. Our job is to go out and bring the good news of Jesus even out into the gates of hell From the very beginning, Jesus, before the church even existed, Jesus said the church was going to be the aggressor. My word's not His. Because there's nothing on earth that can stand against it. And so we go, just like the Bible tells us to. And we go to people and we love them and we share the good news with them. And we are not the ones that bring them to Jesus. The Holy Spirit does that. We just bring the good news of Jesus to them. And the Christian church today, just like the Christian church 2,000 years ago, hasn't changed its focus, its goal, or its purpose. It's to proclaim the good news of Jesus and realize that not even the gates of hell will prevail against him. Not even the gates of hell will prevail against his church. What do you believe? Who do you say that he is? Let's pray. God, thank you that uh, <laughs> you provided me the opportunity to correct something that I had misunderstood. Because the truth, the truth of that passage, is far more powerful than anything I had ever read into it. One of the things that I realize, God, is your word is far more powerful than what we understand the moment we look at it the first time. It's easy to pick up bits and pieces. It's easy to grab on to things that we like and that we understand and that we agree with. But Your Word is so much deeper, so much more complex, so much more living than that. God, help us to be a people who believe in You, the living God, who put our faith in Your Son, Jesus the Christ, our Savior. And then God, through Your Holy Spirit, put it in each and every one of us a desire to share that truth with the world around us that the gates of hell would not prevail. In Jesus' name, Amen. If you're feeling a little whoa after that one, I think it's kind of what Jesus wanted His disciples to get in touch with. I think that was what He was hoping to do to them with that visit. He wanted His disciples to grasp the true nature, the true mission of Christ's church. The gates of hell, what really struck me standing there that day, one of my notes that I wrote was the gates of hell were a place of devout religion. Very, very ungodly, but devout religion. The gates of hell still represent sin and death, but they don't represent people. The gates of hell represent ideologies, Things, places, beliefs that are there and designed to take us away from God. That hasn't changed. Our call isn't to be concerned about about stopping the people. It's the ideas that drive the people that are so dangerous. We're called to reach the people with the good news of Jesus. Jesus. Because Jesus promised the disciples that day and the promise stands for us today that the gates of hell, no matter where you find them, will not prevail against the church of Jesus Christ. So what we want to make sure that we do is that we never stray from truly being the very best embodiment of the church of Jesus that we can. We stay true to the Word and we take the truth of His life-saving salvation out to a world that is dying because they're getting sucked into the gates of hell. There's nothing to fear. But that is an awesome and wonderful responsibility. Thank you folks for coming today. I hope you have a great week. we got a service Wednesday night at 6.32, next Sunday at 8.30 and 10.30. Uh, there will be folks back at the table if you want to sign up for Life Groups or Alpha. Thank you for being here. Thank you for worshiping. Thank you for being willing to be challenged by the Word of God and what it means to you. I want to leave you with just simply this thought. Who is He to you? Who is Jesus to you? And what about your life says that? Who is Jesus to you? A single most important question you'll ever have to answer. Thanks for coming. We've got one more song.